Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at all protected. NASA 557, contact tower 128.15. Caution, caution. Manual, fuel, manual, fuel. I'm John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello there, John. Hi, Todd. How are you? Not bad at all. It's just the two of us today, so we can uh, do whatever we want. Yep, Greg is off. Uh, you know, I don't think I like his lifestyle. He's He's got more work than he knows that he has time to do with him. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I've gone through periods like that, and uh, it can be exciting, but it can be, uh, well, confusing when you wake up and say to yourself, first question, okay, what time zone and or city am I in? Right. Where am I? I've done that once myself. Well, well, today's show is a uh, kind of a follow-up to a recent one we did where we talked about the uh, role of uh, adrenaline and high-performance or experimental aircraft and accidents. And in this case, uh, rather than the recent show where we talked about a um, a company that was allowing passengers to experience a Top Gun time ex- type experience, this is an event where the person who was flying the aircraft was giving himself his own Top Gun experience. And it's also a celebrity event involving James Horner, who is a very well-known, very famous Oscar-winning composer. And even if you have never seen any of these movies, you have very likely heard the music. I mean, he's been involved in dozens of movies, uh, household name movies like Glory, Field of Dreams, Braveheart, Star Trek, Wrath of Khan. And he did several with Ron Howard, including Apollo 13, A Beautiful Mind, Cocoon, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And James Cameron, Titanic, Aliens, Avatar, those are big ones. My favorite of his was one where he and James Cameron worked together, where James Cameron was the special effects person. It was a 1980 movie called Battle Beyond the Stars, starring... Uh, Robert Vaughn of uh, Man from Uncle fame from the 60s and Richard Thomas, John Boy Walton fame from the 70s. So uh, if you haven't seen that movie, it is the best Star Wars ripoff movie I've ever seen. 
What's the name of that again? Battle Beyond the Stars. And for those of you looking at the video version of this, we'll have a movie poster up. I have not heard of this, and I didn't see it. I stumbled across that years ago. I think I saw it on a VHS. That's how far back it was. And I was blown away at how uh, how good this very low-budget um, science fiction ripoff movie looked. And, of course, James Cameron was uh, behind it, so uh, surprise, surprise. But uh, getting to the event, um, James Horner, in, in addition to being a <laughs> prolific composer of movie music, was also a very serious pilot. He was a private pilot rated for both uh, single-engine land and helicopters. Uh, he had not... Uh, achieved a uh, instrument rating, but he had roughly, I believe, uh, 800 hours of uh, total flight or more than 800 hours, a significant amount of, of, of flight time. The accident aircraft, which was a Takano, a version of a Takano aircraft, the kind of uh, Embraer aircraft that's been used as a military trainer and as a counterinsurgency type of military aircraft by air forces around the world, high-performance single-engine turboprop uh, engine. And uh, he had had about 80 hours in this aircraft. And one day back in 2015, he was having some fun. He was flying off in uh, Southern California, doing a lot of low altitude uh, aerobatic work and in and out of uh, high terrain, going down canyons, according to one of the witnesses. And uh, for whatever reason, losing control of the aircraft, misjudging, uh, he impacted uh, terrain at uh, high speed and high energy and was uh, killed. And the issues with this is, in part, a follow-on to what we talked about before, about the role of what kind of risk one takes, either as a passenger or a pilot, and whether those are reasonable risks. And on top of that, this is a situation where, according to the reports from the uh, FAA, he had a variety of drugs in the system. He had um, high cholesterol issues, but those drugs were not the ones at issue here. The probable cause uh, said pilot's failure to maintain clearance from terrain during low-level air work, which resulted in uncontrolled collision with terrain, contributing to the accident was the pilot's impairment from the combined effects of butylbitol and codeine. Codeine, I know. The other one I'm not so uh, sure about. But the combination of those two, according to the report, could lead to judgment issues and as well as performance issues. And it calls into question, what was the decision-making that went into his decision to do that kind of air work in that kind of aircraft at that altitude? Now, unfortunately, both the public docket and the accident report itself, which is going to be available on the page hosting this show, did not go into those background details. So we don't know what the thinking process may have been with the pilot, or with the entity that uh, owned the aircraft. And again, it wasn't clear whether or not it was uh, owned by a company that was basically owned partially or fully by James Horner, or whether it was a separate company. But the fact is, he had had almost 80 hours of flight in this particular aircraft. So he was quite familiar with it. So not only the decision-making of flying that route or flying that series of maneuvers, but the decision-making of doing so knowingly being under the influence of drugs that might have affected his performance and judgment. Yeah, and flying, I mean, he was flying down in the canyons and, and uh, his wife and others reported he was at 500 feet or so. Um, I mean, that's the minimum 500 feet, but flying those canyons, I'm familiar with that area of California. And uh, that's 
those canyons come up on you quick flying in that, that area just north of Los Angeles. And it's, uh, I mean, it's really a, a, a very hilly and, and uh, lots of canyon area. So if, you, if you're not paying attention, you certainly could get uh, in over your head real quick if you're doing low level work. And we know, uh, I was looking at the radar data, we know that the radar uh, couldn't pick him up until he got to be above 7,000 feet. So that meant that all this work that he was doing down low was out of uh, sight of the air traffic controllers. So that's an interesting piece that, that he told them that he was going to be working down low. So he was having fun with that, running the canyons, you know, and maybe just being involved with some of those movies that he was involved with. Maybe that, you know, oftentimes those low-level scenes are used uh, to add excitement to the movie, and maybe he was, you know, reliving some of that. And I recall the early reports of this uh, accident when it happened back in 2015. Uh, some of the, uh, when the results of, came in that he was under the influence of these drugs, it was passed off in some of the media as, oh, he was under the influence of drugs. And that's what caused this. Well, maybe, because really there isn't enough here to go on that level of detail as into we know what was in the system. It's unclear how often he had had this in the system before. It's unclear what role it played into his decision-making, whether the decision-making he made on this flight was radically different from past flights, whether his behavior in the hours and days leading up to this event was quite different from his normal behavior. For example, and you've done this many times before, John, you have a major accident investigation. And one of the things that's done is that you look at several days of the accident pilot's history to see if there's anything unusual with sleeping patterns, with behavioral issues with problems at home, et cetera. I saw none of that here. And in I your did. experience, what kind of impact can issues at home or issues with sleep or issues with trying to balance your prescription medications, how that how that plays has played into accidents in the past? Well, typically we would go back three days and look at your history. And if there was nothing of note in those three days, then that's all we would do. But if there was something noteworthy in there, then we may go back even further. But he flew a lot of time in the last uh, six months in this airplane, in almost 30 hours. So he wasn't unfamiliar with the airplane or flying. You know, he wasn't stale, so to speak, because he hadn't flown recently. So he's flown a lot recently in this very airplane. So, uh and this was a fairly high-performance aircraft from my, what I was reading in various places. Again, maybe not this particular model, but uh, this brand of aircraft, it could have a climb rate of like 3,500 feet uh, per minute or something. Uh, well, ridiculous compared to what I usually fly in. This, again, this was is designed to be a military aircraft. This is not your average um, privately owned uh, single-engine aircraft. And uh, this is not something for the faint of heart or for someone who is not well-versed in how to fly. And again, he had hundreds of hours, so he was a competent pilot for sure. And the aircraft itself had a total of 3,300 hours on the airframe as of the last 3,358 hours as of the last inspection. I don't know enough about this aircraft to know if that makes us an old airframe toward the end of its life or whether it was in the prime of its life. 
It was manufactured, though, in 1989. Take your holiday as seriously as British Airways Holidays takes your holiday. So ditch your desk, set your out-of-office on, and unwind on the white sandy beaches of the Dominican Republic. With an all-inclusive, family-friendly break at the Grand Palladium Palace Resort and Spa. Or luxurious adult-only getaway at the TRS Turquesa Hotel. Book now with a low deposit at ba.com slash palladium. T's and C's apply at all protected. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about the history of the airplane either. But I, I did look at the maintenance side of what they said in the report. And and I also looked at the pictures for the engine. And man, it was destroyed. Now, the engines are pretty, pretty robustly put together. They're pretty solid. And this one was really destroyed. So he hit the ground at a pretty good rate of, of uh, speed, vertical descent. But uh, also then I went digging and I looked at the picture of the accident site. And for a little airplane, he dug a big hole, which further reinforced what I thought about him flying this airplane at high speed into the ground. So that would lead you to think uh, that maybe there was something else involved. Uh, the engine, there was nothing wrong with the engine of the propeller, according to the report. But what about the crazy gyrations that are on the radar track of this airplane? Did we have the possibility of having high Gs on him? You know, of course, these little airplanes don't have G suits in them. Right. And could he have gotten himself in trouble by uh, really taking some risky maneuvers and causing blood loss or or a dizziness or a number of medical conditions that come with that kind of activity. So could that possibly have an effect on this? Uh, we'll never know, but that raises a question. Well, the report also has a line in here that uh, i like to point out. It says, the airplane was produced to meet stringent military requirements. It was designed for high G loading loads, G high G landing loads, advanced fatigue testing, and spin tests, including inverted spins at all altitude. So this is, again, a, an aerobatic aircraft, sturdily built aircraft, uh, much more so than your uh, purpose-built aerobatic aircraft that are typically at air shows. And like you said, it's unclear what this uh, kind of G-loads he had because there was nothing in the way of a, of a cockpit voice recorder or a flight data recorder. But I, certainly, if you're doing abrupt maneuvers, and you turn your head the wrong way at the right time, you can get vertigo extremely quickly. And again, it's unclear whether or not this was an issue here. There's certainly no mention of it. It is clear that he's had many hours flying in this aircraft. It's not clear from the public docket or the report whether or not um, the 79 or so hours was doing this kind of aerobatics or whether it was just tooling around uh, in the sky and not doing this sort of thing. Specifically, the uh, there was 76.9 hours total in this make and model of aircraft. And uh, I'm not being a lawyer here, but let me re read this strictly. In this make and model, it didn't say in this particular aircraft. So it leaves open the question, is this the only Takano that he, flew, that he flew or did he fly a lot of others? Was this one he had not flown in a while or, for, or, or flew regularly? I don't know. It would be nice to know, but it's not uh, stated here or any place I could see in the public docket. You know, you raised a, an interesting question that I wanted to raise once before on, on one of our shows. 
is that, you know, all of these investigations, the NTSB only goes as far as they need to go to satisfy their requirement to find the probable cause, or most probable cause of the accident. It leaves a lot of areas open for, for people like us that want to know more about the accident and want to know more about the the events around it to see if there's some learning uh, lesson that can be extracted from what happened, not just in the probable cause. You know, when I when I first started doing accident investigation with airlines, uh, I, I remember this for 50 years. We had an, an issue that was discovered on, on emergency escape slides on airplanes. Uh, and the we had an engineer, company engineer with us, and boy, he wanted he wanted a fleet campaign to, to check every airplane for that. And he got resistance inside the airline not to do a fleet campaign. Those are expensive. Fleet campaigns are expensive. And uh, he pushed hardest, very, very hard and won and got a fleet campaign going for the, the escape sites. And we found a number of them, other than others that were also deficient. So and one of the reasons why the NTSB has the party status where, where manufacturers and others can come in and be party to the investigation is just for that. Because there are things that are found that are not on high enough on the list for the NTSB to do a separate investigation for, but they need to have somebody look at them. And it's assumed and often is accomplished by other individuals in the group that will bring that information back to the manufacturers or their companies and get improvements made because they found them as a result of an accident or an incident. So it's, it, uh, it does get frustrating for guys like you and I when you go through these reports and you have these questions and you just can't answer them because the NTSB didn't go that far, and now it's impossible to get that information. Let me go back a bit and say that the report did imply that he'd flown this aircraft at least twice because it says also the pilot successfully completed his most recent flight review on January of the year of the accident, uh, roughly uh, six months before the accident. Let me get the date on on that. Yeah, about five, six months before the accident in the same accident airplane. So he flew it at least twice, probably flew it more than twice. There's no way to tell. Another point is that when it comes to civil accidents, the NTSB report is usually not the last word in the sense of, uh, given that this was a, uh, a fatal event with a person of, uh, of wealth and means of the family, I am willing to bet, although I have no data on this, that there might have been a uh, further actions in the legal sense of trying to recover damages from the manufacturer, from the owners of the aircraft, et cetera. Even if that does come to pass, if it's settled out of court, there's not going to be any public record of it. So there could be a legal process that has been going on or has been completed that actually uncovered a lot of the questions we have and a lot more. But that sort of thing is not open to public inspection. There is no public docket for uh, civil uh, suits like this that get settled out of court. So again, someone may know it's not going to be us. It's not going to be the NTSB. Yes. It's unfortunate that, you know, somebody here with with means going out, uh, it's pretty clear that he was seeking the thrills of of at least aerobaric flying, and which is fun. There's no question about it, which is fun. 
but it's very easy to get yourself in trouble. And as we can see here, it's a shame. Now, in general, and this is something that uh, goes back to my days when I was uh, analyzing uh, accents across the board for Boeing. Uh, one of the things I came up with in my head is like, when I ask myself, how can I find more information? Where is it going to be? I ask myself three questions. Who would know? Who would care? And who would care enough to write it down? Now, that usually allowed me to open up my mind and go to a few places where I might get the information. Doesn't mean I'll find it. For example, if there's a civil lawsuit somewhere, somebody knew, somebody cared, and somebody wrote it down, I just won't have access to it. So in addition to those three questions is, is it accessible? And if it is accessible, is it releasable? As a, And there's no need to mention specific uh, instances. I'm sure you and I both know of many events that have happened where we know that there's knowledge, we know that there's documentation, and there's no way that we can uh, legally uh, talk about that without getting our you-know-what suit off. Yes. Yes. And sometimes in order to get the information out of the court cases, you actually have to go to court uh, and review the documents there because they're not always online. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about a fun new podcast called So There I Was. If you're a fan of aviation or simply enjoy hearing captivating stories, then this is the podcast for you. Hosted by former Marine pilots Fig and Repeat, this podcast shares first-hand accounts of flying experiences that will have you on the edge of your seat. Whether you're in the mood for something funny, scary, poignant, or tragic, this podcast has it all. With a relaxed and conversational tone, the pilots share their stories like you're sitting right there with them at the bar after a flight. Hear from fighter pilots, astronauts, blue angels, aircraft carrier captains, Navy and Coast Guard rescue pilots, and many more. Most have survived near-death experiences. Others have overcome incredible disabilities to continue to fly airplanes. You'll hear about heart-pumping moments in the cockpit, hilarious screw-ups during flights, insane hijinks off-duty, and the challenges pilots routinely face. Hear what it feels like to be shot off the bow of a carrier or into space. Experience the terror of landing on a pitching deck on a night so black that the pilot can barely taxi afterwards because his legs are shaking so badly. Hear firsthand how lonely it is to be in the middle of the ocean in a life raft on a dark night in eight-foot seas. Each story is unique and told with a level of detail that will make you feel like you were there. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll laugh until you cry. But one thing is certain. You won't be bored. So there I was. It's how all great aviation tales begin. So, we are where we are. We know the guy was out having a good time. He had plenty of experience. He shouldn't have had the kind of accident that he had, given what we know about it. But there's also so many holes in what we know that it could clearly be something else as well. But the bottom line is, if you're out flying, you've got to be paying attention. You know, if you're going to do aerobatics, why are you doing them down so low? You know, if you're trying, if you're out there practicing all these twists and turns and all these events, get get someplace where you can have lots of altitude and do it. So if there is a mistake, you can get out. You have time to recover. But I guess. Uh, I guess it's just another one of those uh, adventures where people with, with the means get in over their head. Now, uh, this uh, segues into a perfect 
Next to last word, because I went flying today, did a cross country to a nearby airport, and the winds were a little higher than I'm used to. And one of the two runways at my home airport was closed, and the only runway that was open had a direct 90-degree crosswind uh, taking off and landing. And I hadn't had a crosswind takeoff like that in a while. I thought, okay, is this risk too high? And I thought, all right, how can I balance the risk? Let me look and see what other people are doing. Let me see if there's any pilot reports. Air traffic control, the, the tower told me, hey, you know, 35 minutes ago, we had turbulence from a light aircraft. 20 minutes ago, we had turbulence from a, from a light jet. So I had real-time information. That's just me. I still went ahead and did it. Now, my decision-making process, someone who has invested time and energy into going out there and has a schedule issue where it's like, I can only fly so many times in a week or a month, and I'm not going to pass by this opportunity. I might not might not be clear-headed enough to make the right decision. The people around me, if they see that I'm agitated or worried about something or see that there's something unusual about this, they know that, hey, you know, Todd, you haven't taken off in a windy day like this in a while. What's up? So the people around the pilot who know the pilot's habits very, very well might be able to sense that there's something off-kilter, something out of whack, behavior-wise, physical-wise, or environmental-wise, where it just doesn't seem right. If you see that in the people in, in your life, raise the issue. Talk to them. I'm not saying convince them not to do what they're doing, but convince them to stop and think about it. And maybe they will stop and think about it. You know, I actually, in my speeches or, or talks to mechanics, I like to call it a chat on the back porch, not really a speech. But I often raise the issue that we are our brother's keeper. And if you're working with somebody and you see that they're obviously different than what they were yesterday, that there's something going on, raise the issue. Talk to them about it. Because it may be something going on at home. It may be something else. But just by raising the issue and talking to them, sometimes uh, a clear mind will prevail. So, you know, we are an aviation community. Uh, we're supposed to, and when you're in a community, you're supposed to look after each other. So, just thinking. Just thinking. So that was your second and the last word? Indeed. All right. So my last word is what I always say, because we haven't solved the problem yet. And that is, if you're going to go flying, do a good session of pre-planning before you get to the airport. After you get to the airport, do it again. When you get out to your airplane, do a good pre-flight. If you're afraid you don't know what a good pre-flight is, get your hands on a mechanic that works on the airplane and ask them to give you some pointers. And after you get in the air, put that head on a swivel because mid-airs and near-misses and all the problems that come with them are still very prevalent out there today. And we have a lot of student pilots that, that are prone to making mistakes. And please, please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube... We're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that. 
and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.